For life to work right, relationships need to work right. It's the way God made us. God has gone to great lengths to relate to us, so we have potential to build incredible relationships with one another. Gaining God's perspective will give us greater purpose, bring peace in the midst of conflict, and help us to restore relationships. God made us to be relatable. Hey, Mountain. Good morning. I want to say hello to our friends at the Bel Air campus, uh, the Arena Club, and to the Edgewood campus at the Epicenter in Edgewood. Uh, we have been in this series called Relatable. We've been talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the context of our relationships, and today we're going to be talking about friendship. And we can even learn something from kids about relationships and friendship. And as we know, kids can say the most amazing things, right? Uh, a teacher named Susie Becker collected uh, solutions to fix all the world's problems and published them in a little book called The All Better Book. And so one question she asked was, how can you make people feel better about themselves? Caitlin, who was nine, said, if they don't feel like they're pretty, you could say, you're a lot prettier than a person I know who has big, bulgy eyes. <laughs> so very helpful things like that solve all the world's problems. Another question she asked, with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? Matt, age eight, said, we could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. And Brian, age eight, said, sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. We get that, don't we? Sometimes we feel Brian's pain because we're actually not that different from him. We all have a longing to be loved and to love other people. We have a desperate longing for significant relationships, relationships that are open and honest, where there's no pretense or hidden agenda. Relationships where we can know and be known, where we can love and be loved. Kelly and I were really good friends before we started dating years ago. Uh, and it's probably obvious to everyone in the room uh, why we were the ones who asked, were asked to share this message today. I mean, we're the two of the most friendly people on our staff, when you think about it. Um, but which one of us do you think has the most friends? We're going to just ask for a show of hands. Uh, how many of you think that I have more friends? Yes. Oh, come. Yes. Why in the world? Y'all know what's up. <laughs> I think it's different at Bel Air results there. Uh, how many of you think Kelly has more friends? Yeah, come on. Well. That shows what you know. Well, the answer is that I have twice as many friends as Kelly does. Uh, yeah, Facebook friends. <laughs> well, we didn't specify what kind of friends. But we do know, don't we, that Facebook friends are not the same as real friends, right? Sometimes we convince ourselves that that's not true. And when we really look at our friendships, Kelly has more deep, true friendships than I do. But if we're honest, technology has impacted how we view relationships and friendships, right? Uh, it makes us feel like we're more connected than we really are. 
Yeah, the term friend doesn't always mean what it used to mean. The term is evolving. A friend used to be somebody that you actually spent time with. Friendship was marked by honesty and loyalty, by spending time together and sharing in the ups and downs of life. But with the explosion of social media, uh, somebody that you've never even met in person can follow you or friend you, and we actually call that person a friend. And the average American Facebook user has 328 Facebook friends. But the average American says that they only have two close friends. And that's down from six just 20 years ago. It's in decline. And 25% of us, one out of four, say they have zero close friends. A researcher at MIT named Sherry Turkle wrote a book called Alone Together. I think even the title of the book is very telling, says a lot. In her research, she found that part of our growing attachment to technology, and especially to social media, is that it seems to promise the satisfaction of meeting some of the great human needs, three in particular. Um, The need for attention, the need to be heard, and the need to never be alone. Don't you just hear that? You feel it. It's what it all comes down to for most of us. It's the cry of our soul for connection. We cry out for attention. We cry out for our voice to be heard. And we cry out to not be left alone. And that leads us to the second way that technology has impacted our relationships and our friendships and how we view them. Because we're becoming addicted to immediate affirmation. We're addicted to it. Yeah, so in other words, if I'm feeling lonely, I can get out my camera. Let's take a selfie. Okay. Actually, let's get, a, let's get them All right, in let's get them. All right. All right, y'all wave. Oh, wait. Oh, there wait, I'm not in it. You got There you go. <laughs> See, and I, okay, I got this picture, and then I can load this up to Instagram, which I will later. And uh, a few minutes later, I'll check it, and I'll have a few likes. You know, so I get, I get like immediate attention, and then somebody will comment and say, oh, how cute you and Rob are preaching together. And so I get instant gratification. And then we get that kind of immediate response, and it actually releases a chemical in our brain called dopamine, and that's an addicting chemical, and we want more and more and more of it. And we're like, ooh, what did they say? Did they like it? Oh, look who all liked it. How many people liked it? How come she never likes my posts? And we're addicted to the immediate feedback. But what's really happening is through this digital connection, it meets a short-term need in us but it defers a longer-term, deeper need. And researchers actually call this deferred loneliness. We get immediate feedback to meet our short-term needs, but at the end of the day, we still have this deep longing for something more, something real, something deeper. We're living our lives for likes when what we're actually longing for is love. We're hooked on instant gratification, and it's changing the way we do relationships. So technology is efficient and can be a great way to communicate. So if you just need to communicate something really quickly, a text is a great way to do that. Uh, And social media is great for connecting people, especially across long distances. I've loved reconnecting with people that I went to high school or college with, people I probably never would have heard from again if not for social media. Um, And Ram and I are especially grateful for this because we have a daughter who lives in Africa. And so technology has been a great way to keep us connected. We've found meaningful ways to connect through technology. But it can also create isolation or 
a reassuring distance between, between people. Because through technology, I don't even actually have to interact with you. I can keep a safe distance from people when that's our only way of connecting through technology. In-person conversations can get kind of tangled. Tone of voice and facial expression and body language that don't show up through technology change things when we're face-to-face. But through technology, I can carefully calculate my response. I can edit my words and make you believe that everything is great. When the truth is, if you saw my face, you might know that I was really angry or really sad or really lonely. Or if we were face-to-face, your body language might tell me that I've hurt you. But with technology, I can paint whatever picture I want you to see and pretend that we're friends. So technology has really impacted how we view relationships and how we view friendships. But let's set that aside and let's just ask ourselves the question, what kind of friend do I want to be? What kind of friend do you want to be? I'm not talking about the Facebook kind either. We can learn a lot about relationships through Scripture and specifically through Jesus' life and his teaching. Uh, In John 13, we see uh, this amazing scene where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And this is just a stunning scene when you think about it. The Son of God kneeling down and doing what was considered as a humiliating act, washing the feet of his closest friends and followers. And then in that same passage, he says this to them in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, Jesus said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what I love about this is not just what he said, which is amazing, but what he didn't say. And there's lots of things he could say as to how people would know that you're his follower. He didn't say they'll know you are my disciples if you have perfect theology or doctrine. He didn't say they'll know you are my disciples if you're always in church or if you serve in the right ministries or if you look a certain way or act a certain way. He didn't say they'll know you are my disciples if you have a fish emblem on your car, which quite honestly, some of you probably should not have a fish emblem on your car because people are going to question if you're actually disciples because of the way you drive, right? Jesus said, this is how people will know that you are my disciples, by the way you love and treat one another. So how do we become that kind of friend, the kind of friend that we want to be, the kind of friend that everybody wants? The author of Hebrews said this. He said, let us think of ways, I love this, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Wouldn't it be amazing if those of us who follow Jesus got together and said, hey, how can we be so audacious in the way that we show love to other people that they're like, man, they must be followers of Jesus. Have you seen the way that they love each other? I've seen some of you love like that. I've seen it happen here, Mountain. A lot of you love people like this, and others do take notice. And uh, we need to keep unleashing love like that in our relationships. So we want to get really practical and look at just two simple thoughts. And they really are simple. You're going to say maybe they're too simple. 
And yet when you pause and take a look at our culture today, you're going to see how necessary they really are. And I promise you that if you'll apply them in your life and in your relationships, they're going to be far more than they are right now. And the first thing is to show up, to show up, to be present with one another. And some of us need to rediscover the power of practicing presence with other people. Think about it this way. God didn't shout his love from heaven to us, did he? He showed his love to us on earth. He stripped himself of all of his heavenly glory, and he became one of us. God became flesh in the person of Jesus. In fact, one of Jesus' very names is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus loved people that others rejected. He poured his heart into religious, what the religious people and everybody else knew were unworthy souls. He hung out with liars and cheaters and adulterers and prostitutes. He hung out with sinners like us. No, God didn't shout out his love from heaven, from a distance. He showed up in the midst of our mess and did life with us. And there's something about presence that is so powerful. But yet so many of us settle for something far less. The 12th chapter of the book of Romans in the New Testament has some good guidance for these kinds of friendships and relationships. Paul takes the first 11 chapters of Romans basically to tell us how messed up we are and why we need a Savior. Uh, And then how the gospel is for everyone everyone, available to every single person through faith in Jesus. But then in chapter 12, he shifts gears. And he turns his focus to how we're to live out our salvation in a very practical way. He says, now that you're people who have been saved by grace, here's how you should live, and especially how you should live with one another. And I am telling you, if we would live out this text, our families, our church, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our community would be revolutionized. Starting with verse 9 of chapter 12, he says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. There are four words for love in the Greek language. And the word that Paul uses in verse 9 is the word agape. It's the highest form of love, love without condition. It's often the word used to describe God's love for us. Another translation says it this way, love others well and don't hide behind a mask. Let your love be genuine, be authentic, bring your real self to the relationship and be the kind of friend who is safe for others to bring their real selves. Be sincere in your love for others. Paul continues in verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And another translation reads, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's exactly how God is, friends, and that's what we're called to be. God exists in relationship. That He always has. And if you go back and start with Genesis and read through Scripture, you'll see that God, by His very nature, is a community. He exists in relationship. He can't help it. It's part of his nature. It's who he is. Can you imagine what goes on at the very heart of the Trinity, the very heart of God between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What would their relationship be like as they interact with each other? Can you imagine them arguing over which one is the most all-knowing? 
I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Can you imagine them bickering over who is the most powerful or who is the most creative or who is the most loving? Some of you might remember the television show, The Brady Bunch. You remember Jan, the middle sister? And she used to complain about her older sister, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. That's all I ever hear. Remember that? Can you imagine the spirit saying, Jesus, 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 that's all I ever hear. That's never happened, and it never will, because their delight is in one another. They can't get enough. Jesus' delight is to do the Father's will. The Father delights in his Son and says, in him I am well pleased. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and then the Jesus sends the Spirit into the hearts of people like us who are connected with the Father. Jesus humbles himself, and therefore God the Father exalts him. Throughout eternity, it's this eternal dance of mutual submission, one to the other, a never-ending contest to see how the Father, Son, and Spirit can delight in each other. So what if we lived and loved like this? Can you imagine if we were the kind of people who actually honored others above ourselves? If we tried to outdo one another in showing honor? If we lived to make more assists than goals? facilitating another person's win rather than our own. Paul goes on then in Romans 12 and verse 11, he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, faithful, uh, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Let's live like that. Something powerful about presence. So Rob and I are celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary in just a few weeks. Thank you. Yeah, I was eight years old when we got married. Yeah. 30 years, that's kind of a big deal. So we wanted to do something special to celebrate. So we planned a trip to Italy. And uh, we, were, we planned a two-week spiritual pilgrimage with some friends, actually. And then we went a week early. Uh, just to celebrate together, uh, to celebrate our 30 years and just to enjoy being together. And we actually took that trip just in June. So the first week was amazing. We saw like a whole new part of God's creation. Uh, We saw the vineyards and olive trees. We went to the Amalfi Coast, uh, saw the canals of Venice, experienced some incredible historical sites, saw some beautiful cathedrals in Florence and Rome, and we had dinner at a 300-year-old Tuscan farm. And we just really had a great time being together, just enjoying this good gift. And then about a week into the trip, it all came to a screeching halt. And Rob landed in the ER in a small little hill town called Orvieto with severe dehydration that led to stage three kidney failure. Yeah, he was really sick and I was really scared. And we were stuck in a little public hospital where we didn't understand the language or the culture. Uh, And this happened on what was supposed to be the first day of pilgrimage for us with friends. So we ended up missing every scheduled part of the pilgrimage that we had paid for, except for one little excursion to Assisi that we got to take. We've been planning this for months, um, saved money and cut corners to pay for it, and we had to miss it. So we still had a pilgrimage of sorts in the hospital. We really did try to pay attention to where God was showing up and what he was doing in us and what we were supposed to learn from this but it really was one of the most difficult things we have ever been through in our 30 years of marriage. 
But here's how we got through it. When we realized that we needed to go to the hospital, my, fr my friend Claire, who was with us on the pilgrimage, said, I'm going to the hospital with you. And I said, no, Claire, you don't need to do that. I don't want you to miss this. You've been looking forward to it. You paid for the trip. You go and be with the group. She said, no, I'm going with you. And she did. And she sat with me uh, all day, what turned out to be a very frustrating, very scary day in the ER. She didn't say to me, call if you need anything. She actually went with me. She was there in the waiting room. And when I came out from the back with bad news, she could see my sad and scared face and be there with me. She held my hand, and she paced with me, and she prayed with me. She listened to my frustration. She made sure I got something to eat. And Claire and her husband, Scott, took care of me throughout the whole pilgrimage, made sure that I had everything I needed so that I could take care of Rob. The whole group of pilgrims was praying for us through the week, and others came to the hospital to pray with us and just to let us know that we weren't alone. We got lots of texts from our friends here. We got encouraging words and expressions of sorrow and scripture. And some of you even texted your prayers right to me. I even got a phone call from Joe Liturgy. That's what it looks like to be present. So that's what being present looked like for us in the middle of a really hard time. And I don't know what being present to others is going to look like for you. But maybe it's important for you to just ponder that for a little bit. What might it mean if you were to ask somebody to lunch that normally you would just check on, maybe just text, but instead you ask them to lunch and you sit across from them and just let the conversation go. You just simply listen and you pray and you laugh and you tell stories and you just love them. Or maybe you invite somebody over to your home and maybe you make dinner for them or if you're, that's not something you do, you order takeout and you have them in your home and you just sit across the table from them and you just share life. And there's something holy about breaking bread with somebody else and doing life with them. Or maybe you invest in somebody who's in a different stage of life than yourself. If you're older, you invest in somebody who's younger. If you're younger, you, you reach out and connect with somebody who's older than you are. Or maybe you are intentional to invite somebody over and get to know them that you know nobody's going to invite. Maybe that's the nudging that you experience today that God is pushing into your life to say, who are you being present for? Some of you right now know that you're longing for more deep in the heart of you. You're missing the joy and blessing of doing life together with other people, of, of being honest about your struggles, uh, having a place to share the exciting things that God is doing in your life, to, to celebrate the victories with someone, to, to go through the dark valleys with someone, to encourage one another. And all of us, no matter our age, no matter our stage of life, all of us need this in our lives. That's why we make such a big deal about groups around here and making sure everyone has a place to belong and a group of people to connect with and be with you on the journey. For those of you who are a little older in years like me, uh, maybe more mature in your faith, you need to consider investing in some of our young adults. Uh, multi-generational friendships are, and mentoring relationships are just so important in the church and can be so life-giving for everybody involved. 
And we want to take just a moment to highlight this important area of ministry, uh, of our group's ministry right now, and to let you know about an important change that's coming for our young adults. This ministry is being split into two different ministries, college age and young professionals. So wherever you fall on the young adults age spectrum, you can find a place of meaningful connection with those who are in a similar stage of life. But our heart for all of us um, is that we find a place to connect. But specifically, these young adults, I'm going to give you two vision nights that are coming up for college age, July 23rd and August 3rd vision nights, and then for young professionals, July 22nd and 27th. But all of us, our heart is that we find a place to connect, a place to belong, a a safe place to be our real selves. Do you have a place like that? Maybe some of you are saying, well, doing life with other people like that, the way you're describing, that just gets too messy. You're right. It does get messy but you're wrong in that it's not too messy. The risk is worth the reward. When you open up your heart and you do life together, because friends, life is just better together. So first, just be present. Second thing, do something. Be engaged. True friendship requires us to live alongside each other in a full-bodied way. Don't just be there in body, but be emotionally completely engaged. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. You can do simple things. Remember birthdays. Say thank you. Let others know they did a good job. Encourage someone. Let them know their gifts matter. Listen. Really listen. Participate in an activity that they enjoy. Take someone to dinner. Take dinner to someone. Show up at the hospital when a friend's loved one is suffering and sit with them in the waiting room. Let your love be active. Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What a difference it would make in our relationships if we lived like that. If someone is rude to you, you just respond with kindness. Then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Step right into the happiness and the sadness of people's lives. Because of Rob's illness that actually continued after we got back to the United States, he actually ended up in the ER again, we had to cancel a trip to the North American Christian Convention in Kansas City. And this is a convention that we have attended for decades. A lot of our staff go. As a matter of fact, a lot of them were there this year, and they were faithful to let us know via text Uh, both that we were missed, but also just kind of keep us informed about what was going on. They posted pictures on Instagram so we could kind of stay in the loop. My birthday was during the week of the convention, and I got several texts from friends and family who were there. Uh, The McDade family, Aaron and Nathan McDade, and their two little girls sent me a really sweet video uh, just telling me happy birthday and each one of them telling me why they loved me. And then Don Willig sent this video. Check this out. that great? Yeah. So my birthday was the last day of the convention, and I believe that was the, it looked like that was after the closing session. And a bunch of my friends 
um, got together. Here's what's really cool about that. Uh, as you, you probably saw a bunch of people that you recognize there, a lot of our staff and their families were in that video. Um, what you probably didn't notice uh, was that Rob's brother, who lives in New Hampshire, was in that video. Ethan and Betsy Magnus, who used to be on our staff and now live in Tennessee, were in that video. That's what we're called to do. Uh, make the effort to be engaged, reach out in whatever ways are possible for you. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Paul goes on to talk about other ways that we can do something and be engaged in others' lives. In verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. See, it's not about your status or mine. As we follow the one who left heaven to become a servant of all. So we can set aside whatever perceived status and that we have and begin to love and serve others, no matter what their status or position is. Whether they have something to offer us in return or not, we can set it aside and serve and love them. Paul goes on to say, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. doesn't mean that you're responsible for all peace. But he does say, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I think he's telling us that we don't have to show up for every fight that we're invited to. All right? Don't be the person who escalates the conversation, whether that's in person or on social media. Paul is saying... You be the one to promote harmony and unity in your relationships. You be the peacemaker. Later in the New Testament, Peter said it this way. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. It's a deep spiritual engagement where we're all in, where the person in the room is the most important one to us. So there's a fairly new word in the dictionary. The word is FOMO. Do you know this word? Who knows what that means? F-O-M-O. What is it? What's it mean? Fear of missing out. It's the anxiety that there's something exciting or interesting happening elsewhere, somewhere where you're not. And it's often triggered by posts on social media. A lot of us suffer from this, don't we? We're afraid that we're missing the good thing that's going on. We're so busy running to the next thing, trying to get the next promotion, or with our face stuck in a screen because we're so afraid we're going to miss out on something. But what we end up missing is the person right in front of us, the people God's given us to love. Bob Goff said this. He said, I used to be afraid of failing at something that really mattered to me, but now I'm more afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Don't let fear of missing out on the wrong thing make you miss out on the most important thing. The disciple that Jesus loved, as he describes himself, wrote these words in his first letter that we find near the end of the New Testament. And this was near the end of his life, and you can almost hear him pouring out his heart for what he hopes people can be. And he says these words, Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Let's actually live it out. Let's just not just talk about it. Don't just pray for people. Pray with people. Don't just like what they post. Get engaged in their lives so that you begin to love them. 
This was the greatest weapon that the first followers of Jesus had. You see, they were being so persecuted by the outside world that they just leaned in and loved each other and cared for each other with this radical, unifying love. And if anyone had a need, you probably know what they they did. They, They would take all of their possessions, they would sell them, they would take the money, and then they would use it to meet the needs of the needy persons in their community. In fact, Scripture says that they were so generous, they were so loving, that there were no needy persons among them. Can you imagine such a community? And the skeptical world around them looked on with longing. And they were like, I'm not sure I believe what they believe, but I want what they have. They love each other, and they care for each other deeply. Here's what Jesus told us. He said, they'll know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. By the way you love one another. People will know and sense your love when you get involved in their lives and you care for them where they are. You open up your heart and your life to them. Don't do this with an agenda. Just love people. And then they'll see something in you that they really want. And when they ask you what it is, you can say, It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. He loves me like that. Makes me able and want to to love others like that. So Mountain, may we show up. May we be present in people's lives. And may we do something. May we be fully engaged in unleashing love to other people. May May the way we begin to love each other as well as love our families and our neighbors and our co-workers, may that love be so attractive to other people that they begin to recognize they must be followers of Jesus. And then they say to themselves, I want some of that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in your presence, your Holy Spirit would do a work in us so the world would know that we are disciples of Jesus by the way we love one another. I pray, God, that we would genuinely have a fear of missing out on what matters most to you and what should matter most to us. Give us love and grace as there are conversations between friends in all sorts of contexts this week. God, for those that are lacking a true, genuine, spirit-filled community, I pray that you would nudge their hearts to take that step and say no more doing life alone. Life is better together. I want to be in a community where we truly open up and show our love to one another. And God, as followers of Jesus, I pray that we would be moved to be engaged with love in the actual lives of people. And the world would look on and say, wow, those must be some of those Jesus people. And they would be drawn to your love as a result. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our model of community, we pray. Amen.